Today's reading is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1 to 17. Then David fled from Nioth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he has said to himself, Jonathan must know, not know this, or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I will do for you. So David said, Look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I'm supposed to die with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he's determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said. Let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he's favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you a word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan be ever so severely. If I do not let you know and send you away in peace, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut out every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Continue in verse 24. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He set his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul. But David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought, something must have happened to David to make, to make David's ceremonial unclean. Surely he's unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son, Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the mill, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, 
David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because my family is preserving a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I've found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger, and on that second day of the feast he did not eat, because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is sufficient for all things in salvation. We pray that you would speak to us now, Lord, by your Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. Well, folks, it is a great privilege to get to preach to you today. If um, you're one of the women in my life, the only TV show you want to talk to me about is, oh goodness, I've gone the wrong way again. Technology convinces me of the demonic. There's only one show the ladies in my life want to talk about. It's Netflix's The Crown. It's a small mercy to me, I tell you, that season five has been suspended until 2022. Uh, but today we're looking at another, another saga, another drama, uh, except it's called The Crown 1000 BC. And I promise you, the political intrigue of, of The Crown on Netflix or Game of Thrones or your favorite drama, it has nothing on the story that we read in 1 Samuel chapter 20. For we read about the ascendancy of another king, a young man called David. He'd been having quite the meteoric rise to fame. You certainly don't rise that fast in any organization or society or country without making enemies. And of course, David's biggest enemy is coming from inside the camp. King Saul himself. Uh, Saul had been the king of Israel, but the Lord had told him that the crown would be taken away from him. And whether David knew it or not, you don't have to be a rocket surgeon to figure out that if you're the all-conquering general, the hero of the hour, the, the guy who's the number one song in the charts, every boy in the country has been named after you, the children are putting your poster up in their bedrooms, the handsome runaway leader of the polls. You don't have to be a detective to know that he is a threat. And Saul, well, up to, I know you've been studying 1 Samuel. If you've been reading along, you would have seen that Saul's already had four attempts on David's life and one attempt to kidnap him. We read these stories in the Bible. We can read them so coolly, so dispassionately. And yet this narrative is drenched it's dripping in drama and conspiracy and intrigue. And David, he's at the end of his tether. He's desperate. And who does he turn to? 
Well, he turns to a man called Jonathan, his friend Jonathan. But the twist in the story here is that Jonathan is Saul's own son. Jonathan, the man who by normal lineage and normal patronage should be wearing the crown next when his father dies, except for one thing. Just a few chapters earlier, Jonathan has promised covenantal friendship, love, and loyalty to David. And now in chapter 20, it's not David who takes center stage, but Jonathan. And we see three things. He is, I can't remember which way. He's the model of a friend. He's the model of a follower. And he has confidence in the king. It's a long passage that we're reading in 1 Samuel at the minute, but I think the author gives it to us in such detail. One, to build the story, but so that for us, some 3,000 years later, as followers of another king, that we can look over Jonathan's shoulder and we can see a bigger picture, a bigger story, and a bigger king that we're being called to follow. But for Jonathan, well, the choice is clear-cut and we see that he is the model of a friend. Uh, David flees to Jonathan. They're, they're close, of course. They have deep friendship. And David says to him in verse 1, uh, what on earth is going on? What have I done? Why does your father want to kill me? He has no idea why he's being persecuted. And Jonathan, well, you read in verse 2, you might think he uh, thinks David is paranoid. He says, you're not going to die my dad doesn't do anything big or small without telling me first. Don't worry, David. It's all going to be fine. Now, you think that uh, Jonathan could be a bit naive here for saying that, but of course, he's already been directly responsible for fending off one assassination attempt on David, and he's got his father to swear an oath to him that he's not going to hurt a hair on David's head. Of course he thinks he can trust his father. I don't think I've got to scratch the surface too far, but 2020 and 21 have been a terrible year for uh, the evangelical church as so many of our leaders who we have discovered were far less than what we, we thought of them. And it's painful for any church to deal with failures of leadership. And for Jonathan, well, I just think he finds this too painful to accept. His dad the first king of Israel, his closest confidant, the guy he's looked up to his whole life, the first king, for Jonathan to see him as a vengeful, deceitful executioner. It would be unimaginable, wouldn't it? Shocking. It would have been shocking. And as David outlines his plans to uncover Saul's motives, he's at the end of his tether, and Jonathan can't believe it, well, this is dreadful. <laughs> Sorry, I can't get this to work. Um, slide five, please. Oh, goodness. He says, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. Whatever you want, I'm going to do it for you. You see the depth of his commitment to David in their friendship. And what's at the very heart of this friendship? Oh, he says in verse 8, as for you, show kindness to your servant. David is asking Jonathan for kindness. Jonathan's the future king. 
David's the outlaw, and David's saying, please help me. Except English fails us so spectacularly here. The word kind in English, I think, is a bit moot. It's a bit, become a bit meek. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew root, root for this word is hese, and, and it was a word that was imbued with this deep covenantal love and binding friendship and binding loyalty. He was literally uni- asking to be united to Jonathan. Such was the depth of their friendship. One commentator says that what David is asking for is an act of grace, something for nothing when he didn't deserve anything. David's asking for something for nothing when he doesn't deserve anything, as he asks Jonathan for help. For he has nothing to offer. He's the nation's most wanted man. He's talking to the king's son. Jonathan just had to clap his hands or click his fingers and David would be dead. He would have done his civic duty. He would have been next in line to the throne. But we see that Jonathan is a model friend, for he's committed to showing David grace. Why? Because he knows one day the boot will be on the other foot. He's committed to David, and he's looking ahead. He knows that one day David is going to have the crown. And so he turns to David, and he repeats David's concern in verse 14, but show me unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed, and do not ever cut your kindness from my family. Show me the same kindness that the Lord has shown you, David, and the same kindness that you are asking of me, because he knows that David's going to have the crown one day, and all conventional wisdom in 1000 BC, when you had a new king, the first thing the new king did was, well, he would kill the heirs of the old king to secure his throne, to secure his empire, to secure his lineage. Don't look too shocked. I mean, we just do this in modern politics and call it a cabinet reshuffle when there's a new uh, president or prime minister in the country. Warlords got rid of the heirs of their enemies or those they had conquered. But later on, we'll see in this wonderful book that David seeks Jonathan out and he restores his lands to Jonathan when he is king. And Jonathan's ill son, Mehiphbosheth, he gives him a place at his table and brings him into David's family. This is the Hesse kindness that Jonathan and David are talking about. And it's the heart of their relationship, the grace and the endurance and the loyalty that is at the heart of their friendship. And it's worth, isn't it, when we hear about this, to to think about our own friendships. Are they based on grace or are they based on what I can get? Do we brave the word sorry? Do we bear forgiveness when we are asked for it? Does messing up mean the end of the friendship? Or when we mess up, does it bring the friends round to, to lift us up again? Jonathan is the model friend. But he's not just the model friend, he is the model follower. David sets a plan in action. He's sure that when it comes to Saul, there's no room for both of them. And he sets a plan to expose this. At the New Moon Festival feast, he asks Jonathan if he may go home. David, for this dinner, it was a three-line whip. It was the party AGM. It was as significant as missing day one and two of the Chinese New Year festivities. 
and Saul knows that something is up. He finds out that Jonathan has sent him away to his home in Bethlehem, and in verse 30, his anger rages. His anger flares up as he tells his son, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. He forgets that Jonathan is his son too as well. He says, I don't know why you've sided with the son of Jesse. Uh, I don't know why you're risking the kingdom. Note that he can't even bring himself to say David's name. And he says, as long as he lives, the kingdom will not be established. Send for him, for he must die. I'm quite glad that Saul didn't have access to Twitter late at night, but his paranoid, the whiff of trees and the anger, Saul's telling his son, you fool, you're throwing the kingdom away. So what does Jonathan do? Is he going to put the throne at risk? Well, no. He says, I will not be party to my friend's execution. Verse 32, can you see it? Why should he be put to death? What's he done wrong? He faces Saul with David's innocence. He says, David has just saved your bacon. He saved all of our bacon. He stood up to Goliath. He stood up to the Philistines again and again and again. He's brought Israel victory. He's brought you security. He's given you the crown. He's given you wealth and prosperity. What's he done wrong? And what does Saul do? Well, in one of the most dramatic scenes in all of the Old Testament, Saul rises from the banquet table, picks up his spear, and hurls it at his son, treating his son like he was treating his perceived enemy. And finally, the penny had dropped. Verse 33, Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Finally, he's worked it out. Jonathan knew the writing was on the wall, and he knew he had to choose between David and Saul, God's anointed and his own father. He'd made the choice earlier, hadn't he? He'd made the relationship with David. But followers often find that after they've made the choice, following through on the consequences, delivering on the words we've spoken, well, that can be much harder, can't it? To let go of something we'd originally hoped to to hang on to. He was going to have to say goodbye to the closeness of his relationship with his father. He knew the palace would no longer be his home. He knew that he would be looking over his shoulder for the next spear to come his way. And people, don't we? We know this choice. When we've got to follow through on the choices that we, and those who we've said we'd follow, there's a cost, there's a squeeze. It can be in business, it can be in our relationships, in our, in our marriages, in the, in, in, in the bad habits that we may have to give up. For others, I think the, the worst thing we can do is we simply shy away. We shy away from the choice we know we need to make. But Jonathan is not one of these people. We are told that in verse 34, he got up in his fierce anger. He left the banquet table, left by shame by his father's shameful treatment, and a meal that had began with one empty seat now finishes with two. Jonathan knows that no accommodation is possible. He knows he cannot be true to both. He can't sit with David as the anointed king and with his father Saul desperately trying to cling on to this crown. 
He's a model friend, but he's also a model follower. He can't tolerate both. How could he do it? Because he has confidence in the King, and he shows the way for modern and current disciples of Jesus Christ today. Jonathan is a model follower. Well, we don't read it, but the next morning they, they're mucking about with arrows. Uh, they, they say goodbye, David and Jonathan. It's a parting farewell. And Jonathan says to him, uh, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and went back into town. David knew, Jonathan knew who was going to be the heir to the throne. Jonathan knew which way history was going to be going, and he knew it wasn't him. Jonathan was now at peace with the future king, but at war with his father, King Saul. And as he goes, he goes back to the palace. His life as a follower would not be in David's band. Perhaps he wouldn't have enjoyed that, or perhaps David's followers simply wouldn't have trusted him. No, Jonathan's life is going to be played out as a follower of the king in the court of the palace. The day-to-day -day tension of living in one place but being loyal to another. It's so funny, isn't it, I think, as Christians, how we are on the same side and God calls us to live in different places under different pressure. And for Jonathan, well, I'm sure it would have brought him much shame in the short term. His betrayal of his father would have disgraced his family name. But remember, in the long term, it was to bring him glory. We celebrate, as we read this story 3,000 years later, his following. And we know that he was not disgraced when David restored his lands. And we believe that, that, that he has got the crown of life in heaven now. Momentary shame for eternal honor and glory. We know this. We meet one final time when David got to see Jonathan again after they parted. And he tells him, don't be afraid, David. When David is the number one outlaw, you will be king and I will be second. However big, however important you think you are, there's lots of big and important people in this city. We all have a choice to make. Who's going to wear the crown in this friendship? Am I going to be first or am I going to be second? And he echoes what Jesus called his followers to do 2,000 years later. Who's going to wear the crown? Jesus calls on us to do the same. In Matthew chapter 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Those familiar words from the gospel, words that perhaps have become a cliche to us, words that perhaps shame us, as we know that Matthew was talking about things and talking about worry, but we know it goes wider than things and worry, don't we? Things we could imagine we could hold on to, friendships we might like to hold on to, relationships with boyfriends or girlfriends, or business decisions that keep us up awake at night. We hear these words, seek first His kingdom. For some of us, it will mean giving up a bad habit, returning to the old ethics that we used to call home. For others, and I don't know this church very well, but brothers and sisters at St. Andrews have had brutal lives following Jesus as their family have been killed, as they've been excommunicated and kicked out of their homes, 
for saying, I want to follow the King. God calls us all to different races. But what's going to happen? What's going to happen to David? What's going to happen to Jonathan? Well, you'll have to come back next week. But as you hear these words of Jesus calling you to follow him, as the Spirit, I just wonder, as God's Word speaks, as the Spirit helps us understand it, where, where is the Spirit putting his thumb on today in our lives? Where is God challenging us? Where is the pulse? Where is the thing that you don't want God? What's the question you don't want God to ask you? Generally, I find that's where the Spirit's at work in my life. And for some of us, we've perhaps been avoiding the decision for too long. We've, been, we've just been avoiding it entirely. Jonathan could follow Jesus because he knew. Jonathan could follow David because he knew David was going to be king. The Scriptures tell us that there's a room in heaven where Jesus sits on the throne and he is worshipped for all time. And it tells us that one day he's going to return and he's going to give those who have been his followers, he's going to give them the greatest treasure of all. He's going to give us the crown of life for those who seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Let's respond to him today by putting him first and ourselves second. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the encouragement of a, a man like Jonathan, who was a loyal friend and a wonderful follower. Thank you for the challenge he is to our own lives, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would be stirred by these words into action to seek you, Lord, your kingdom and your righteousness first in all things. By your Spirit, Father, I ask that you would show us areas where they are not, our lives are not in line with your kingdom. Lord, give us grace to deal with that, humility to repent, and good friends, Lord, to, to support us and lift us up and to help us to run the race together. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.